Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've conducted, uh, I think, 394 of them as of today. And uh, if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu and you'll find all the previous ones organized and categorized in four or five different ways. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. If you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there is a donate button on every page of the site. My guest today is Chula Dasa, um, John Yates, Ph.D., is his original name. Um, he is the director of Dharma Treasure Buddhist Sangha outside Tucson, Arizona, and he's the author of the book the, illuminate, the Mind Illuminated, a complete meditation guide using Buddhist wisdom and brain science. He's a meditation master with over four decades of experience in Tibetan and Theravadan Buddhist traditions. Childasa also taught physiology and neuroscience for many years. He combines the original teachings of the Buddha with an emerging scientific understanding of the mind to give students a rich and rare opportunity for rapid progress and profound insight. So welcome. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. You know, probably a hundred times while doing these interviews, I've quoted the quote, awakening is an accident, but continued practice will make you accident prone. And I always, <laughs> I always just said, some Zen guy said that. I don't know who it was, but I discovered it was you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I'm the first person that ever said that. Uh-huh. <laughs> or the only person, but yeah. Yeah, it's a great little quote, very handy. Yes. Um, much to the ire of the non-practice folks who say that you're already enlightened <laughs> and you don't need to do anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, it kind of allows room for them, too. You yeah. know? So it's, 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 they can have accidents, too. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Like a yeah. friend of mine said, you know, you might win the lottery, but don't make it your retirement plan. I, exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so you have a long and extensive background in, in meditation. I, I know you, you learned TM, did that for a couple of years back in 1970, and you've, you've studied a, a lot of other things. Um, it's usually useful and interesting, before we get into the meat of what you're doing and teaching now, to just get a little bit of a chronological sketch you know, of the significant highlights of your path. People always find that they can kind of tune into the person better if they have a sense of what he's been through and many in many cases mm. they can they can relate to a lot of the same things well, that's a good point uh, it's kind of hard to know how far to go back but um, I did have a, a rather major experience when I was uh, in my teens about uh, 15 years old that uh, made me realize that uh, the sort of uh, conventional truth and reality that I had grown up uh, believing was truth and reality uh, really wasn't. And so I, uh, and that uh, pretty much everybody had their own uh, view of what was real and what wasn't. And so that set me on my path as a, uh, as a truth seeker. I, I've been a truth seeker my whole life. What, what triggered that experience, and what was the nature of it? Um, well, 
it gets uh, into a lot of really personal detail. I'll give you a very rough sketch. I, I, I grew up in a very difficult household. Uh, my mother was, uh, she had some psychological problems and my father had severe PTSD, well that's what we call it now, uh, from World War II. Sounds like you're so describing I, my life. Well, is that right? Well, yeah, same thing. So, so I had a very traumatic childhood with uh, uh, physical abuse on one side and a way overprotected mo protective mother who was also, uh, uh, let's say, she wasn't entirely in touch with conventional reality. And uh, so what I absorbed from her then, as an adolescent, I discovered that the views I had absorbed from her were in, weren't really in sync with uh, uh, the more commonly shared views of, of my peers. And um, that was extremely traumatic. And it led to my essentially letting go uh, of, of all views, trying to trying to discover what was true, and then coming to uh, an almost equally upsetting realization that everybody was living in their own private reality. It wasn't just my mother. She was just in a more extreme case of it. <laughs> and, uh, and and so it, it, was, it was a very emotionally traumatic period. The result was that I I left home, I dropped out of school. I never went to high school, even though I mm. ended up eventually getting a, a PhD. And uh, I, I, I left home when I was 15. So I, I, I had something of an unusual um, early years of my life. So. You're still describing my life, leaving home, dropping out of high school. <laughs> really? Like brothers from another amazing. mother, they say. Wow, that is, that is, that is totally amazing. Yeah. Yes. Great. And the whole thing about the perspective, you know, realizing that everybody sees the world differently. I mean, for me, that was triggered by my first LSD experience, and especially going into a Dunkin' Donuts in the morning and see, mm. seeing the ladies selling the donuts and realizing, Wow, you know, what they're actually perceiving in this situation is so different from what I'm perceiving. It was the first time I realized that, you know, the world is not just the same for everybody. Yes, so the the, the means by which you reached it were, were the same, but <laughs> you had the same experience. Yeah. Well, my father was a research scientist. He was, he was a chemist. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he was also a person who was interested in a lot of other things. He was an amateur astronomer and he, he dabbled in physics in his spare time and things like that. So I was exposed to a lot of science. And so I, the two directions that appeared to me in my adolescence as, as possible avenues for truth seeking were science and philosophy. And I'm, I'm probably a bit unusual in that I read a lot of Kant and Kierkegaard and uh, uh, Husserl and people like that. I was drawn to phenomenology since phenomenology was basically saying what I had already discovered uh, in my teens. But anyway, then spirituality and religion and the only religion I knew because of where I grew up was Christianity. And uh, from what I knew about Christianity, 
the, the Catholic Church was the mother church. So I ended up becoming a Catholic and actually spending a couple of years as a seminarian thinking that, okay, this is where I was going to find, this is, this is one source of, uh, at, at the same time, I was at a Catholic university and I was studying sciences. And I, I was physics, chemistry, biology. And sort of like I was trying to cover all the bases. Right. And uh, hedging your bets. And yeah, hedging my bets and philosophy as well. And I became extremely disillusioned with, with Catholicism. Um, you know, the, the more I learned about church history and, and, uh, and, and church theology, the more I realized. Well, I, I have to say, I, I had become acquainted with Meister Eckhart and uh, Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and the Cloud of Unknowing. And I thought that's what I was going to find. You know, you, you become a seminarian. Okay, you're going to really get into... No way. <laughs> that just wasn't part of it. I was very disillusioned and that happened in the 60s. And so I dropped out of the seminary and dro dropped into the world of uh, Lovins in the Park and LSD and, and mescaline and all those kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. And so um, that really, that, that broke me out of the box that I had been in and really expanded the scope of my search, which then became... It remained, I, I still felt science held some great promise, but uh, spirituality now appeared to be uh, a very appealing uh, avenue to follow. And um, I, I became acquainted with Eastern religions. And uh, so uh, I actually discovered the Advaita Vedanta Society in mm -hmm. Chicago, and I ordered a bunch of books from them. And I tried to teach myself meditation from Patanjali's uh, Yoga Sutras. Mm -hmm. uh, sutras, I, I mix up my... my your Pali, Pali. And your Sanskrit. Yeah, yeah, I do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, that didn't work out too well. And I ended up instead becoming... I, I eventually got into university through some amazing good fortune uh you know and was doing my phd and that's when i encountered uh, a buddhist teacher um and uh, i had been as as you mentioned i'd been doing tm for a couple of years and i hadn't had a lot of luck teaching myself meditation using the material from the Vedanta Society, which is really no surprise. I had no teacher and no idea where to find one. And then when the Beatles brought Maharishi and uh, TM became available and I started meditating and, and all of a sudden I did something that worked. Yeah. And I was excited about that. So I was going to become a TM teacher back in those days. The first step was you became a TM checker, and then they had a whole series of things. And I was on my way for that uh, particular path when I happened upon Buddhism. And uh, my first teacher was Kemananda. He was a, a lay teacher at that point, although he had spent uh, a number of years in monasteries in Southeast Asia. And he was a student of Namjel Rinpoche. And now uh, this is an 
interesting part of the story because this is, this is my lineage is Namjel Rinpoche was born George Dawson in Canada uh, and I was living in Canada at the time. Um, he had gone to Southeast Asia and was ordained as Ananda Bodhi and um, he became quite advanced and was recognized within the Theravada tradition. He was sent to uh, to Britain to establish meditation centers there. And you have to recall this was the uh, early 60s when he was sent. So this Buddhism was pretty new to all of uh, Western culture, uh, Britain, Europe, uh, US. I think in the US, most people who knew about Buddhism at all mostly knew Zen and uh, Alan Watts and things like that. Anyway, he. Uh, uh, Ananda Bodhi set up a meditation center first in London and then one in Scotland, which later became uh, Samye Ling, uh, a Tibetan center. But then he returned to Canada and part of his teaching style is he would take his students on these journeys. And one of the journeys took him to Sikkim and then uh, to the residence of the uh, Karmapa where the Karmapa recognized Ananda Bodhi as the tulku of Namjal Rinpoche. What does that mean? Uh, tul a tulku, re reincarnation. Oh, I see. Was, okay, yeah, so he was the reincarnation of the Namjal Rinpoche. And uh, so uh, Ananda Bodhi reordained uh, uh, with uh, the Karmapa and took up the study of Tibetan Buddhism and teaching it. And so that particular lineage is one that's combined both Tibetan and Theravadan teachings. And then ultimately through my teachers I've expanded beyond that and, and pretty much every branch of Buddhism has been explored by uh, one of my teachers, uh, Jodi Dhamma, who I met when he was uh, a bhikkhu, he since this this robed and uh, lives in lives in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Very wonderful person. But anyway, I met Kame Ananda. He was my first teacher. Actually, I had a, a sitar that I had brought from an, another uh, graduate student. He'd uh, he. He was East Indian, he'd gone back to India, got married, his wife received an expensive sitar for a wedding present. The main gourd got smashed on the airplane on the trip back to Winnipeg. I bought it from him for $20, which was a fortune for graduates in, in those days, and had no idea what I was gonna do with it. Kame Ananda played a, a musical instrument called the Sorbahar, which is basically a larger version of a sitar. And he was, performing one night in uh, uh, Winnipeg's first vegetarian restaurant. This would have been about 1971, I think. Okay. And, uh, and I recognized the similarity between, the, I, I, I didn't know anything about the robes he was wearing, but I recognized the instrument he was playing. And so on a break, I said, I have a sitar that's broken and can you teach me how to repair, repair it and, or can you look at it and tell me if it's repairable and then teach me how to play it. And it turned out that he had a, uh, a center that he'd set up 
uh, on the Cinnaboyne River in Winnipeg. He was in this beautiful old mansion and a whole community that lived with him. So he gave me the address and he said, come next Thursday and bring your... So I brought my sitar with the pieces in a bag and so forth. And over a series of weeks where I went there and we painstakingly reconstructed this sitar, he sat and talked to me about Buddhism. And uh, I found it extremely interesting. And uh, I, one thing in particular, he said to me that the Buddha had said, don't believe anything, don't take anything on authority, including my authority. Don't anything that I, I teach you. And I was like, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, at this point, I'm a scientist. At this point, I'm a graduate student, PhD student doing science, writing papers. It's like, okay, this this is the spirituality that's for me. It comes yeah. from a teacher that says that. And that was how I became involved in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And as I say, uh, Kamen Nando was a student of Namjel. And so he was teaching the Mahasi style Vipassana at the same time that he was uh, doing the, uh, the uh, Kagyu teachings. And then, um, and then I started doing meditation retreats with him. Um, did, you find it, to... um, did you find it difficult to transition from TM to the Buddhist meditation? Or was it actually better suited to your nature and it was like easy to, to shift? Well, actually, I found, I found the Mahasi style of Vipassana extremely difficult. Oh. But I stuck with it for a little over a year. Mm -hmm. And that's when my second teacher, Jody Dhamma, returned from Southeast Asia, and he was still ordained as a beaker. He was also Canadian born. But he spent many, many years and was he was uh, quite an accomplished uh, practitioner. And I discussed with him my problems with the meditation, the Vipassana meditation that uh, Kema was teaching me. And he said, well, you know, you realize that that's a, that's a new method. That was just invented in the, in the late 19th century. And why don't you try a much more traditional method? And so he taught me Samatha Vipassana and that was it. That was it. That was it. Is it appropriate to ask at this point what the mechanics of that were? Or would you rather sort of move on and you'll have your own explanation of how you teach meditation and everything? You, you mean, the, I'm not sure what your question the, is. The Samatha Vipassana that you just mentioned, I mean, is it is it worth discussing how that worked and why it was easier for you, or is that just a side note? Um, no, I, actually, I think, I think it's quite relevant. Okay. <clears throat> because with the Samatha training, uh, you're training stability of attention at the same time you're... Uh, uh, developing mindfulness, mm -hmm. and in the uh, in in the dry vipassana tradition, uh, in the, the Mahasi tradition, there's a tendency for all the teachers to really poo-poo uh, anything to do with concentration, attentional stability. You don't need stable attention. Uh, all you need is is momentary concentration, kanika samadhi. It's called. Mm -hmm and the method itself. You're probably familiar with the, that particular method, the Not Mahasi so uh, I, 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 never, I don't know Buddhism as well as I would like to. Um, 
So don't assume that I know anything. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. I, and I, I, and who, who knows who's listening to this and what they yes. know? You know. Right. Yeah. Well, the much more traditional approach was to to develop a samatha, which usually gets translated as uh, serenity or calm abiding or things like that. Samatha in Pali, samatha in uh, Sanskrit. And it's basically you're training the mind as an instrument for insight and awakening. And uh, the, the vipassana or, or insight comes uh, along with it. So that's why it's called samatha vipassana. And the reason that the Mahasi noting method is referred to as dry insight is that it totally eschews the uh, uh, shamatha component and the attentional stability. Whether it was because I had started out with TM or whether it's just inherently, and this is my opinion, and of course my friend Daniel Ingram and Daniel Budami and a few other people, uh, you know, I think Joseph Goldstein would agree, would agree with me, but there's a few others who might not, that it's it's much more powerful to, to do it this way, to develop these various mental skills before you dive into trying to trigger insight experiences. Okay. But anyway, it worked for me. And as we go along, hopefully we'll define some of these terms a little bit more clearly, like insight, exactly what that means, and, and so on. Um, because we, we shouldn't assume that I, for one, understand fully what you mean by these terms, and, and listeners may not either. Uh, right. I'm sorry. Yes. I, I'll try to stay on track here for the audience. That's okay. Yeah. Let's just define our terms as we go along so, so people can stay with us. So, now... I guess one fundamental question, you know, I, I haven't told you this, but I, I not only practiced TM, but I was a teacher of it for 25 years, and um, although I no longer do that, but there was a, there's a certain mechanics that I, I kind of keep comparing with the mechanics of other things I hear, which seemed very effective to me, and that is that the logic was that the mind has a natural tendency to seek a field of greater happiness. And you yourself say that someplace or other. I have some quote from you here. Yeah, here you go. If an object is important or interesting enough, attention remains stable. If something else is judged more important or interesting, then the balance tips. Attention moves elsewhere. So Marjorie used the same kind of example. You know, If we're sitting here and some beautiful music starts playing, our attention will shift to it. And his logic was that, well, you know, the deeper levels of awareness, pure consciousness, if you will, are inherently blissful, ananda. And if the mind can be given an opportunity to move in that direction, it will do so effortlessly. Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, when I... It's, it sounds like there's a whole spectrum uh, in terms of Buddhist practices from something very similar to what he to that, very, very effortless, natural, no concentration or control, to things which are quite arduous and, and use a lot of concentration, and which would seem to kind of um, contradict that logic of the mind has a natural tendency and we should cooperate with it rather than mm -hmm. fight it. So um, perhaps it, it would help me anyway and perhaps be useful for other people to just explain the, the mechanics of meditation as you practiced it and practice it and teach it mm -hmm. and um, the, the logic of, of why you do so, why it's done that way. Yes. Well, yeah, I, I, I think here is where the, the term uh, the middle way 
applies as it does to so many different things because uh, there are meditation practices which involve uh, what I would consider to be an excessive degree of concentration. And, and here we come to a very important um, distinction. Maybe I can creep up on this idea a little bit. Okay, so somebody tells you, here is your meditation object whether it's a candle or breath of the nose or a casino or Buddha image or whatever it is. Here's your meditation object. Let's say breath of the nose. I want you to focus on the breath of the nose to the exclusion of everything else. Okay. And so you feel like from that instruction, you have the impression that your goal is to achieve a state where there is nothing else in your consciousness except that. And, um, and that you're making progress uh, to the degree that, that there is very, very little else in your consciousness. That there may be things in the background that intrude. There may be thoughts that come up. But if you can, if you can keep them as far away as possible until they disappear, until there's just nothing there but your meditation object, that you have, that you have achieved the practice. Now, if you enter into that state, it, it is very pleasant. It's very, it is very blissful. But as I've discovered, it's a dead end. You, you can sit there in this blissful state and when you come out of it, um, it's you, you carry that pleasant, peaceful, tranquil uh, state with you. You're also a bit fuzzy minded, too, for a while. <laughs> but after, after a little while, you sort of, you know, you come back to, quote, normal. Um, and... Uh, it was a really nice experience, and uh, when the time comes around to meditate again, if you've achieved the skill in doing this, you, you can enter into it again. But um, that's excessive concentration, and it's yeah. not going it's not going to lead you anywhere. Now, the other end of this is to, to the other side of this is to develop this uh, hyper alert kind of awareness so that you really you notice every little thing um, um, that when a thought comes up you notice the thought comes up and you notice the thought passes away there's a sound or sensation you just notice it coming and you notice it going now that that's not so much of a dead end but um, it leaves you with uh, you haven't really developed all of your mental faculties to the degree that, that you can. And both of these things are very difficult to achieve. Yeah. People practice for years and years in either one of these methods without succeeding. So the method that I'm talking about is one that's, it takes a completely different approach. It says that we have two ways of knowing things. We have attention which focuses in, and we're very used to using attention. And 
we can choose what we pay attention to. But as you quoted from my book, our attention also is going to move independently because it's always looking for something interesting or important. Yeah. You know, potential source of pleasure or, or pain to avoid or whatever. And, and, and whatever it focuses on, it wants to analyze and it does so sort of at the expense of everything else you become very preoccupied with. Um, the other thing, the other way we have of knowing uh, is if it, we have this expansive field of conscious awareness that we live in. And attention is really like a, you know, if you could compare that to uh, a, a floodlight that's illuminating, you know, and you're in a pitch dark night and you have this powerful floodlight that's illuminating this large area in front of you. And then you have this spotlight that you can shine on anything in the floodlight. You know, you see something in the floodlit area that looks interesting. And so you shine your spotlight. You know, it's like the, those things they sell, the gazillion uh, gigawatt lights that you can see things in my life. It's like, you, you know, that's what attention is like. It, mm -hmm. it shines on one thing in particular, and then uh, you, you notice something else in the field of your conscious awareness, and you can move your attention to that. Or something else happens in your field of conscious awareness, and so your attention goes to that. So, you, But we have these two different ways of knowing that are operating simultaneously. Now, I didn't do, I didn't know this during most of the time that I was learning to meditate. And, and so I never quite knew, um, was I supposed to be aware of all this other stuff while I was practicing concentration on my breath? Or was that, or was I supposed to make that go away? You know, or conversely, was, was I supposed to just mostly be at this place of, uh, awareness and, and the spotlight of attention was, was problematic and it shouldn't, you know, it, it should, uh, well, what, what happened was um, I sort of intuitively realized that both of these things should be there and actually that they work together and that I was a much more fully present person, you know. I, this is one of the things that, that my teachers and the things, the books I'd read. And uh, Kama and, and Jody weren't my only, only teachers. I also attended retreats with other teachers. And everybody was always stressing, you know, being present. And it became really obvious to me that when I was most present is when I was using both attention and awareness. Hmm. Um, although at that time, I didn't have the words to articulate it the way I did now. I realized that when when I had this more full experience of the present, including what was going on inside my own mind, that that was when that was when things seemed most right. And we haven't talked about what insight is or awakening, but I had already learned at a very um, thorough level that that really this is what I was looking for. And this seemed to me the place that I was going to find insight, was really fully developing my conscious powers, not one aspect of them to, to at the expense of, of the other. Okay. Let me uh, interject a couple questions here, or would I interrupt your train of thought? Do you want to No, go, go right ahead. 
So one thing with regard to like focusing during meditation, let's say you take two five-year-old kids and you sit them down in two separate rooms in front of televisions and you tell one of them to watch, you make one of them watch Meet the Press, but maybe you, you promise cake if they'll sit and watch it for an hour and the other gets to watch SpongeBob SquarePants. You know, I mean, which one is going to be focused on the TV most effortlessly? Uh, <laughs> um, the kid watching CNN, of course. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, the implication here is that different objects of attention might have different abilities to spontaneously and naturally enable our attention to be focused on them. Maybe a candle isn't the most alluring thing to, to uh, give one's attention to. Maybe even the breath isn't the most alluring thing. Could it be that there's an object of attention that one could use in meditation that would be more conducive to the mind naturally focusing and uh, in an effortless way and becoming more and more and more settled? That's one question. Hold that one in your awareness. I, um, I just wanted to also say, you mentioned that samadhi is often translated as concentration, in reference to the unique concentration developed in meditation, but it literally means a gathering together of the mind. Yes. And there's that quote in the Gita which says, um, what the, the many branched and endlessly diverse are the intellects of the irresolute, but the resolute intellect is one-pointed. So there's, and there are several other references, tortoises drawing in their limbs and so on, that indicate that what's being aimed at is a gathering together or convergence of all the fragmented streams of awareness um, into a sort of a, a naturally focused, almost laser-like condition. Well, I wouldn't say laser-like because the laser is isolated, whereas samadhi is said to be settling into unbounded awareness. But in any case, um, concentration in that sense becomes the, a, a symptom or a re, an end result of samadhi rather than a means to it, a cart and horse mm-hmm. kind of situation. So, so let me leave you with those. I, there's more things I could say, but let me leave you with those two. The, the, the idea of certain objects of attention in, as a means of meditation being naturally more alluring to the mind and therefore more conducive to effortlessness, and the second one being uh, samadhi not being attained through concentration but being a concentrated state through whatever means it's attained. We'll deal with it first. Obviously, there, uh, your environment and your life is full of a lot of things that are are interesting to relative uh, to, to to a relative degree compared to each other. Sure. Um, and uh, and so the the normal way that the untrained mind works is it's always looking for what's most interesting, entertaining, important, you know, I, you know, of course, the five-year-old wants to watch Spongebob, right? Yeah. Um, but what we're really trying to do in meditation is to train the mind. We have control over our, our, our attention. Uh, you know, right now, you can choose to pay attention to something else. Um, you can choose to pay attention to one thing and then another and another. But um, how long your attention is going to remain on any one thing does depend on how intrinsically interesting it is. Mm-hmm. Now, in meditation, we want to train our mind so that our intention does whatever we intend it to do. 
And if we want it to stay on something, even though that something is not very interesting, uh, it will. So if you take the, a candle flame or the breath or something like that, uh, the breath at first, if you first learn to meditate on the breath, the first couple of times you do this, it's kind of interesting, but it quickly loses its interest. It gets old. <laughs> right. But the whole point is that you want to train your mind so that your attention will do whatever you want it to. It will move when you want it to do want it to, and it will stay still when you want it to. And so one of the things that you could do is look for what's the most interesting thing. You know, I actually had this come up in one of my meditation classes. Paul raised his hand and he says, uh, I noticed that when I'm sitting and practicing, that if I start having sexual fantasies, it's really easy to stay concentrated. <laughs> so so, so uh, would it be okay to use that as a meditation object? <laughs> you know, and, and I pointed out, well, actually, that's not going to achieve your, your goal. Because your goal is to have your attention, uh, to have the skill in allowing you to keep your attention on whatever you choose to have it on. Not, uh, not something that is naturally appealing. And so that's why uh, there is, if you use the breath, for example, there is enough variation in the breath that you can make a game of exploring the things with the breath. You're going to exhaust that at some point. But when you're first learning, it, it, it can help you stay stable on it. But your, your objective really is a stability of attention that is as is determined by your intentions uh, and is a reflection of a skill that you've developed not to go and find some find the easiest thing around to focus your yeah. attention on would you say that samadhi or some whatever term you would use to represent something like that um, is kind of the ideal outcome of meditation because there are so many yeah. things you can put our attention on we could be dabbling around endlessly in in all kinds of turbulent states of mind but yeah. but it's not that sort of settled focused attention that samadhi yeah. is defined as yes well see that's exactly what happens you sit down you know to meditate and and if i tell you okay uh, focus your attention. I, I, I won't tell you to focus your attention on your breath. I'll tell you to focus your attention on the sensations produced by the breath moving in and out of your nose. The reason is I don't want you creating a fantasy of breath coming in. You can't feel the breath moving through your airways and things like that. I want you to focus on something real. So I, I, I tell you to focus on the sensations of the breath at the nose. Now what happens is you sit there. There's some other part of your mind, you have this pet project you've been working on. It says, why don't we think about our pet project? That would be fine. Or you have this worry and then some other part of your mind says it, it keeps uh, bringing up this uh, concern that you have, uh, this potential problem, uh, maybe you can solve it. And then some other part of your mind is saying, man, this is a waste of time. I could, I could, be, I could be out having a beer with my buddies. I could be watching TV. Your mind, different parts of your mind, um, I mean, they all have the same ultimate objective. Greater happiness, Let, greater fulfillment. Let's, let's do something that feels good and makes us happy. And the different parts of your mind have different ideas of what's going to make you feel good and be happy. Well, for some reason or another, somehow along the way, one part of your mind got the idea that learning to meditate is going to be way 
to make yourself really happy. But it's in competition with all of these others. So the gathering together that we're talking about, and this is exactly what you, you quoted there, the gathering together are these different mental processes with these different ideas of what's the best thing that we can do to make ourselves happy. And where the, the gathering together is when they all get on track with the same idea that, hey, when I meditate and my mind does, let, let's use the word unify, when my mind does get unified around that process of following the sensations of the breath, it feels really peaceful. It feels really good, you know. And so gradually the other parts of your mind will, will say, okay, this is, um, I, I'm willing to go along with this. Yeah. Eventually, the more unified your mind becomes about this, the more the different parts of your mind become unified around the idea that meditation is ultimately going to make me feel mm -hmm. at least as good, if not better, than any of these other possible pursuits. Then you, then you go into this place of it's easy to focus, it's almost effortless, or actually at one point, at some point, eventually it does become completely effortless. Yeah. Because you don't have different parts of your mind in conflict about what's the best thing for us to be doing right yeah. now. And obviously it will have to be the experience that convinces you of that, not just not some browbeating where you convince yourself that you know, meditation is going to bring happiness. It'll, it, the proof yeah. of the pudding is in the eating. Um, it really you, helps if you can see somebody else that's already experienced it. Yeah, yeah. Too. Yeah. Um, although that only goes so far because you have to experience it too, really. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Let me ask you a question about happiness. Um, some people use the model. Um, well, this, this question maybe even goes deeper. Um, you know, from the, the kind of the, the way I'm accustomed to thinking, that the, there's a, a ground of being uh, which is, you know, Satchitananda, it's bliss, it's, it's pure awareness, it's pure consciousness, it's, and it's not isolated, it's, it's universal. And so Ananda, or bliss being one of its qualities, um, if we can be in tune with that, we'll experience happiness. And in fact, some would say that all happiness is sort of a pale reflection, external happiness is sort of a pale reflection of that inner happiness, the way the moon is kind of a reflection of the light of the sun. And... Um, the idea is, I think you referred to the Yoga Sutras earlier, that second verse, uh, yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. If the mind can settle down, mm -hmm. then it will achieve union or yoga uh, with that pure consciousness or as that pure consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that just as turbulent water doesn't reflect the sun very clearly, uh, and yet still water mm -hmm. does, a still mind will reflect or attune one or whatever to that inner bliss. Um, yes. is that, does that model sort of translate into Buddhist philosophy? Uh, it, it certainly does, okay. yes. I mean, that's essentially what samatha is. Okay. So samadhi is the gathering together of the mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it reaches uh, a certain degree of maturity, which includes more than just the concentration aspect, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so when the mind becomes highly unified and in its totality, so there's not just the focus of attention, which as I say, can be a kind of blissful experience, but it doesn't go anywhere. But at the same time, there's this 
uh, I mean, you spoke of the clear light of the mind, this very expansive awareness and consciousness that includes attention, but goes way, way beyond it. That is associated with a, a, a very uh, a strong state of bliss. Samatha is characterized, you describe it as being characterized by five different things. Okay, one is stability of attention. Your attention's not r running around creating these disturbances that Patanjali was talking about. Okay, um, the second is powerful mindfulness. Now, mindfulness means that you, this this other faculty of awareness is very well developed, and your attention and your awareness are working together in a, in, a, in an optimal way. Your mind has has to be unified for this to happen. When your mind is unified, one of the things you'll, you'll find that I say in my book is that the natural state of the unified mind is a state of joy. Mm -hmm. And in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in Buddhist philosophy, at least in certain branches of it, um, Lost my I'll just throw in a quote for you while you're thinking there. You reminded me of something from the, I think it's the Brahma Sutras, contact with Brahman is infinite joy. Yes, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that's that's the sort of thing. It, yeah. That we're, that, that we're, we're talking about uh, the complete unification of the mind. Uh, yeah. As the mind becomes very unified, which it has to, to have this this stable attention and this uh, powerful mindfulness, as I have described, that's a mental state. So in, in, the, in certain schools of Buddhist philosophy, in the Pali, uh, we, we would refer to joy not as a feeling. Pleasure is a feeling. Bliss is a feeling. It's a, the Pali word is Vedana. Radana, you know, but it, it's pleasant, unpleasant, or, or, or neither. So you have a mental state that corresponds to joy, and that's a unified state. And that gives rise to pleasure. That gives rise to happiness. That gives rise to bliss. And so we now have four qualities associated with, uh, with samatha. We have stable attention. All right, we, we have powerful mindfulness, and both of these reflect a unification of mind that's given rise to a mental state of joy accompanied by a very powerful state of, of, of blissful happiness. And as that matures, there develops this, this profound equanimity. Mm -hmm. By equanimity, I mean a non-reactivity. It's, uh, you know... In a, in a sense, what, what is the ultimate happiness? But it's to be totally content, to need or want nothing, to lack nothing at all. And this is really what that equanimity is born of. You have an internally generated state of joy and happiness. And so something may come along that's pleasant and you can enjoy it, but you don't need it. There's no need to grasp onto it. There's no, in other words, you respond to it equanimously. It can come and it can go. Something unpleasant happens. The same thing. You're in this internal state of joy and happiness and you don't need to react to that unpleasantness. You can let it come and you can let it go. And so this is the equanimity that arises. So this is the fifth quality. 
So this is what we're talking about when you have sonotone. And I get the sense that everything you've just said is primarily descriptive, not so much prescriptive. In other words, you're, you're describing a state of being, a state of functioning that yes. is attainable and that um, this is the way your life is going to operate if it's attained. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Yes. And at first you attain it in meditation. Fleetingly, maybe. And, yeah. and the more frequently and the longer mm-hmm. that you're able to do that, the more when you get up from your meditation, it carries over and you're dwelling in the state in your daily life. Yeah, and I think this plays right into the fact that you are a neuroscientist, and I'm, people, most people are familiar with the term neuroplasticity, and that the brain, the brain can be sculpted, as it were, yes, <laughs> o- that's right. over time. And so when, when you're talking about these states, I presume that you're talking about not only a, a unique state or, or, or you know, or, or desirable or extraordinary state subjectively, but neurophysiologically, it would be as, as distinct from ordinary waking consciousness as waking consciousness is from sleeping or sleeping is from dreaming. It, it's its own unique neurophysiological condition, correct? Yes, although it is completely awake, but yes, it is. Yeah. And, and that's really what you're doing with the training. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason that the training does take time and why consistency is really important is because what you're doing is you're you're systematically practicing in a way that's rewiring your brain yeah yeah did you study that sort of thing when you were at university i mean did you do research on meditators and so on uh no i would like to have but uh, that came much later than you know i um i i i came too soon for the opportunity to be there if i if i had uh if I had been uh, younger, I would have had a chance to work in some of the labs that are doing that. I would have joined Richie Davison and some of these other people, and um, but I didn't. And not only that, as a part of my, um, uh, I would say as a part of my Buddhist training, but also as a part of this state of mind that I came to dwell in as a result of my practice. The things that were required to be done in the laboratory research were things that I did not feel comfortable doing. Mm. And so I made a rather difficult decision. There was a certain point in my career where I had uh, uh, I had uh, uh, an offer from uh, uh, University of California in San Diego, and I had another offer from uh, University uh, in uh, uh, um Argent in um, what's capital of Argentina? Buenos Aires. Rio. De, uh, oh, Rio. Rio. Yeah, Rio de Janeiro. And the question was, I didn't feel comfortable taking up these research positions and continuing to do what I was doing. So instead, I made a very difficult decision. I said, I'm not. I'll, I will teach. I'll study. I'll write but I will not do laboratory research. Mm-hmm. And okay. Well, so. I, didn't think, I don't think you did too bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's get our... Uh, no, feel free. I mean, I don't, as I said before we started, I don't mean to sidetrack you at any point. I have a lot of questions here, um, but if you feel like I'm kind of disrupting the flow of your thought, feel free to you know, stay on track and tell me you'd want to talk about something else later. But um, I just want to come back to definitions a little bit. Um, 
You said in one of one quote from your book, consciousness is a process of information exchange taking place within the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose, would you agree that that's one definition of consciousness? I mean, there's things that we're conscious of, you know, I'm conscious of the cat, I'm conscious of the tree, but then, you know, consciousness itself, isn't it, is, do you regard that as a sort of a, a, f- a fundamental field by means of which we're conscious, the way you know, the, the electromagnetic field is, is a field which carries radio waves by means of which a particular radio can, can broadcast music? Or do you see, I'm, I'm sure you don't see, well, maybe you do, con- you don't see consciousness as a, as a metaphenomenon of brain function, epiphenomenon of brain functioning, do you? Or, or do you feel that consciousness is fundamental to matter and gives and somehow matter appears to arise out of it? Or do you feel like it's the other way around? Um, well, my... What I've stated there about consciousness is really a very radical and revolutionary view of consciousness. Uh People are wanting to make consciousness into this thing in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And what I have discovered in the exploration of my own mind and the observation of others and the things that are happening in the universe that... My conscious experience is when various unconscious mental processes exchange information with each other. So my subjective experience of consciousness is nothing more than uh, many different unconscious sub-minds exchanging information. I don't have a thought. Thoughts arise and... I'm conscious of the fact that the thought arose, and then I'm conscious that another thought that comes up that either uh, reinforces that or perhaps opposes it or perhaps leads to something else. Um, I hear myself talking to you and expressing these ideas. I can tell myself the story that I'm deciding what to tell you, but I know that's a lie. I'm listening to it. Um, When I'm thinking, I'm observing uh, the ideas arising and passing away. When I'm sitting in a restaurant deciding, you know, will I have this uh, rich meal or will I have this healthy meal or this one that costs $45 or this one that's a nice conservative uh, $20, $20 meal and things like that. I can observe the different thoughts arise about what I should pick on the menu and then and then I'll notice that a decision arises, and I'll tell myself, I might, I don't do this anymore, but it, the, the time was, I would tell myself the story that, oh, I've decided I'll have the filet mignon. Um, and, and then by the time the waiter has come over and said, I'll take your order now, instead, the other thought comes up, no, I'm going ha- to have the, uh, the chicken salad instead. You know, and I, I watch it happen, and, and I no longer tell myself, the, the, the story that I'm that this is happening in consciousness. It's not happening in consciousness. Consciousness is this place where there's different parts. Whatever shows up in consciousness, like think of consciousness more as a uh, a, a bulletin board, a display screen, uh, a, a, a conference table, where different unconscious parts of your mind present information. And once they present it, it's available to everything else. And the other parts of your mind can respond to it. 
So consciousness is the process of information exchange by unconscious processes. <clears throat> now I look at the universe and everything is, information is being exchanged constantly. You know, a rock falls down the mountain and it hits another rock, you know, and information gets exchanged. Now one rock has a crack in it, another has a chip in it, right? Information exchange is happening everywhere in the universe. Information is exchange is happening at an unconscious level in many, many different levels in the hierarchy of my mind. Mm -hmm. The information exchange is taking place. The only aspect of information exchange that the person that's speaking to you uh, knows about is what's happening at the highest level of information exchange in my mind. And that's the one we give the label consciousness to. So all these people that are looking for consciousness are they're barking up the wrong tree. Consciousness is simply information exchange in the general sense, and it's universal. It's happening everywhere. But what's unique about the information exchange that's happening in a human mind, and also what's unique in the information exchange that's happening at the highest level in, in your dog that was barking a little while ago, mm -hmm is that it just happens to be at the level, at, at the high enough level in the mental hierarchy of my mind and your dog's mind, that it gets stored and it gets part of the narrative. And me as a human being, I can recall it and report it to you. And in, in telling myself the story of who I am and that I was conscious, Chuladasa, were you conscious five minutes ago? Yeah, I remember being conscious five minutes ago. What I remember, though, is just like the events that I was describing to you. I, I've stored the story about the thoughts. You know, you asked me a question I, and, and the thoughts that arose and then the words I spoke in response to that. That's what consciousness is. Okay, let me respond to that. Um, you, just, you just described your subjective experience and... and you gave some indication of the really sophisticated understanding of the mechanics of the mind that you lay out in your book. I, I think it's pretty brilliant. But to use my analogy of the radio again for a minute, let's say we have a room in which we have you know, a radio, a television, cell phone, a gamma ray detector, infrared uh, detector, various other instruments. All of those instruments... Uh, they're designed to detect and in, in some way interpret or express certain frequencies of the electromagnetic field. But the electromagnetic yes. field is just one field. It's not, a, exactly. it's, it's not a different field by virtue of the fact that each instrument reads it differently. It's just one field. And yeah. so the whole idea, as I understand it, of enlightenment or awakening is to realize oneself as the field of consciousness. Electromagnetism here is just an analogy. The, the field of consciousness, which is independent, well, independent of and irrespective of how it's reflected through various nervous systems. It's reflected one th way through a dog, one way through a bat, one way through a, this person, that person. Um, and each, each reflection doesn't really do justice to the full the the the, the in, in deepest nature or quality of or, uh, of that field, but enlightenment or realization does tune one in mm -hmm. to that yes. to to the the deepest nature of that field. One realizes that one is that, 
You know, I'm not yes. just a, a man or a woman or a cat or a dog. I am that field of consciousness, which is fundamental to the to all things, and which is actually the the the, su- the substance of all things, if you will. Do, do, do you resonate with that? Totally. You you've expressed it brilliantly. Yes, that's exactly. That's exactly what it is. You see, what what my mind is, you can ask yourself this interesting question. Well, why then, in in my mind, is there this one level of information exchange that we put the label consciousness to, and and how come, how come all of these other levels uh, aren't, aren't accessible in the same way? Mm-hmm. Well, at their own level, they are accessible, and um, uh, you know. I've, if somehow I could go to the next level down the hierarchy of my mind, I would find that these sub-minds, they're each conscious in their own way, mm-hmm. uh, but they're but they're not conscious of the level that I am, uh, you know, and, and likewise, a, a group of people can have a shared consciousness that um, at the level of the individual mind, we're not aware of. Okay, so... What does your mind do? Why does it compart- why, why is one part conscious and, and, and the others not? Uh, or we'll extend the question beyond that. Okay. If, as you described it, there's this field of consciousness, this vast field of information exchange is taking place on many, many different levels. And the world's populated with human human beings. And so there's many human minds just like mine. The universe is populated. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is just yeah. unbelievably so, vast. So how come how come I can't tune into what's happening to your, your mind and his mind and her mind and everybody else's? Well, it's necessary that I don't. Otherwise, I'd walk out the door and I wouldn't know uh, which place to go to work. You wouldn't be able to function. Yeah. Well, you're totally overwhelmed. So, yeah, so your, our mind is designed to, it, it sticks to the story that's appropriate to this particular collection of, of, of yeah. stuff, this particular five aggregates, so that it can take care of itself and survive and do what it needs to do. But you can go beyond that. And the field, you know, of, of consciousness, and we do experience that. And the more meditation and the more practice you do, the more you experience that. And it takes a whole variety of forms. Um, When I'm doing meditation interviews with my students, I sometimes enter into a place where I know what they're experiencing. Not in the sense that I'm reading your mind like you might imagine in a science fiction story, but in the sense that I know it so that I know exactly what I need to tell them so that they can overcome their particular problem. Another thing that happened to me, you know, I mean, uh, a lot of popular Buddhism has adopted a pre-Buddhist idea of reincarnation. Mm-hmm. And so, and there's particular practices you can do that allow you to Quote, recall past lives. Okay. And I've done those practices and I've discovered that I could have detailed experiences that belong to a life and a person that was definitely not me. And of course, at first it's like, oh, in a previous lifetime, I was such and such. I could, I could tell you the details of some of these experiences that I had. But then it suddenly dawned on me 
that this was really no different than uh, I watch a movie, I watch Dances with Wolves, and I really get into you know the the main character enough that I feel like I'm that person. Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't remember what his name was in the movie, but <laughs> Dances anyway, with Wolves was his name. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what his name. Was. Yeah, but but I realized, oh yeah. So why should I assume? That what I'm tapping into is like a string of beads. I, what I'm doing is I'm accessing uh, mental contents of, of other other minds, and especially this one. I realized that I was uh, that I could access the contents of minds that were contemporaneous uh, with each other or, or with me. And then I realized, okay, we can we can lower the barriers that separate our consciousness from other similar consciousnesses. And the way I would explain this is it's a kind of resonance. If you can enter into a particular resonance with another mind, then you can access that information. That's what we do in these practices. So you may be recalling past lives, but to assume that they're your past lives in some kind of linear series is that's a total illusion, right? Let's dwell on that for a second. Uh let me just play devil's advocate. I heard you say that you've come to the conclusion that there's no end to spiritual evolution, no end to development. I don't know whether you mean just in this life or you possibly mean that when this body drops that there's some sort of essence that continues on, picks up where we left off next time around, which is kind of more of a Hindu emphasis. You know, the... Uh, mm -hmm. It's like dropping the body is said to be like changing clothes, you know, and get putting on new garments. So I don't know that that theory kind of makes sense to me, but it's something I've been dwelling on for forty, fifty years. So maybe I'm just um, you know brainwashed with that that way of thinking. Uh, how, how can you be so certain that when you have had some past life experiences, it wasn't? your soul or your essence in a previous body well let's let's go back to the idea of res the the only way that i could is there, there must be some kind of resonance there must be okay? yeah there must be some subtle essence that that right. moves from right. one to the next right as you, you you buy and sell cars but you're still the driver of the new car uh no that's not what i'm saying and i don't agree with that okay okay all right I, I'm saying that there's some kind of, I have put my mind, this mind, associated with this particular body, this particular person, mm -hmm. into a state of resonance, which allows me to tap into it. It, it, it seems that the cumulative experience of a, an individual mind uh, somehow persists. It's like... Uh, you know, it, it, it's like the, any event that happens in the universe, the information from that continues to propagate. We can mm -hmm. even measure the background radiation of the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. So it seems that that's the case, too, with... Uh, so I can put myself into a state of resonance and resonate. Now, why would I not assume that uh, that was me? It's because one of the things that I've learned as a result of, of of my most profound insight experience is that there is no subtle essence in here. <laughs> that that is an illusion. It's, in other words, no matter where I look and how deeply I look, 
and no matter what stories I want to make up, it just it just isn't there. There's there's nothing there. The thing is, there's, we talk, spoke of a field of consciousness. Okay, I'm a part of that field of consciousness, and when I die, everything about about the experience of this person during this period of however many decades that it's active and interacting with the field of consciousness as a whole, that remains part of the field of consciousness as a whole. So a sperm unites with an ovum, an embryo is formed due to genetics and various environmental factors. A brain begins to form that will function in a particular way. After the birth of that child, there's going to be various other formative influences. Now, it can come into resonance with the portion of the field of consciousness that basically was generated by this person during its, uh, during its period of activity. And as such, to the degree that it resonates, it can absorb that absorb those characteristics. So, but it's not the only one. There could be 10 such children or 100 such children that come after I die, or even while I'm still alive, whose minds come into resonance and can, can draw upon what is, is present in, in, yeah. in my contribution. To it. It's just like, I can put a telescope to the sky and I can locate um, the the signal, the radiation signal of a supernova that happened sometime in, in the past, because I have my telescope focused in the right place at the, and uh, in in the right way that it'll pick up that, or, or it could be a radio telescope, or it could be all kinds of instruments, and I can have that instrument, that information. I can take that information. I can incorporate it with other information. I can add to our understanding of the universe if I was an astronomer. Yeah. So if I'm a newborn infant and then I'm a six-year-old and a 10-year-old and then a 18-year-old who discovers Buddhism and starts meditating and things like this. Well, one of the things that's happened in my experience is that the more I meditated, study and studied Buddhism and spirituality, the more I felt myself, you know, I began to have understandings. I began to have knowledge that I don't know where that came from. And I think I, well, I think I do know where that came from. Past lives. It comes, it comes <laughs> what's that? I said past lives. Yes, past, past lives, but, but not past Not necessarily lives yours. Not necessarily mine, but past lives of people who devoted their lives similarly and went beyond where I went, but I came into enough of a resonance, uh, resonance with them that I could tap into that. Okay. And I have this experience when I'm teaching sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'll hear wisdom coming out of my mouth and say, wow, that that's, that's beautiful. That's, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, there's a number of thoughts I have on this. I don't know for what it's worth. Um, I mean, so what you're saying basically is all the qualities and experiences that one accumulates in a life uh, or it's like filling a bucket and when the body dies you that bucket gets dumped into the field and when it's time to form a new life somebody the, the bucket gets taken out of the field but it could be a mixture of all sorts of things from all sorts of experiences that various beings have had and that forms a new life 
But then what about the fact that you said earlier that your, some, your teacher or someone in your lineage was said to be the reincarnation of so-and-so, and the Dalai Lama is supposed to be the 14th Dalai Lama, isn't he, reincarnation right. of... And so that does seem to be part of that tradition. Well, I don't find any conflict with that at mm-hmm. all. As you may be aware, the... When a Dalai Lama or one of these other uh, high rinpoches dies, then there's some people with a very well-developed skill set that go in search of, quote, the reincarnation of that. What are they really looking for? I would say what they're looking for is a, a child who they can sense that with the right training can be brought into a resonance to tap into that. And I go back to what you said earlier. Don't they test him by seeing if he recognizes beads and other belongings of the previous one and all that stuff? I think it's at a deep intuitive level where they are tuning in to that child's mind, maybe not at a conscious level. I would warrant if we could study the process closely enough we'd find that intentionally or completely unconsciously, the lamas doing the testing are making sure that they pick the right set of beads. <laughs> because, because they've already, by some other process, concluded this is a really good candidate. And they don't always succeed either. Some of the Dalai Lamas of the past have turned into, it was a total mistake, they picked the wrong kid. Yeah, like Pope. Or e- e- either that or the training that they gave them didn't take. But it's a combination. I think when you're looking for a tulku, first of all, you try to find a child that's suitable, that has potential, but then a huge part of it is the training that they undergo subsequently. And I wanna go back to what you said earlier. It's not like you take a bucket of water and you throw it back into the lake because there's a certain coherence. Now, I would say the less well-developed a person is mentally and spiritually, the less coherence there is to their mind. Mm -hmm. So there's some part of their mind that's going to come back as something noble and beautiful and some other part of their mind that's going to come back as a cockroach, you know. Um, But the more spiritual coherence that somebody has developed, then the more these tendencies as a part of the whole in the field of consciousness. There's so many different analogies that we draw upon here, but harmonics, Let's take a concrete concrete example. Let's say these kids who are born with microcephaly because of the Zika virus. So you would say, I guess, that there is no sort of undeveloped soul or somebody with bad karma who needs to experience that kind of a life. It's, It's more sort of the... The, the cosmic intelligence just expresses in all sorts of varieties, but there's no personal um, thing attached to it. Or some, maybe, maybe you should re-express yes. that in your own terms. Uh, yes, that's a, I mean, we, let's use a different example. Um, there are, uh, I, I don't know, every day, dozens, probably hundreds of children born into extreme poverty in Calcutta, right. for example. Mm-hmm. Right? That's going to be a person. Uh, the, the person could say, why me? 
Why wasn't why was I, why wasn't I born to a wealthy family in uh, the Bronx? <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. Um, so so there's a, the, the, the there's, there's going to be a person that has that experience. And let's forget about there being some kind of self that did something that made them deserve that. The world has done something that has created Calcutta and has created poverty and has meant that there's going to be children that are born into that. And we're all part of the same thing. So, okay. yes, it's, it's, it's all of our karma that... <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I promise I'm going to get off this point in just a second because there's a lot of other things we sh we should still talk about. But like, what about near-death experiences? Have you ever studied those and and the kinds of things people experience and the kinds of beings they encounter and so on when when the body is basically checked out? Yes, I have, and and there's a lot of things that you could say about that. Let me start out by saying. A near-death experience is exactly that. They haven't died. They haven't died, right. <laughs> By definition, they haven't died. And, of course, we have uh, cases where people are, quote, brain dead. There's no electrical activity you can measure on the scalp. Even Alexander. But, yeah. Right. But, but now, I mean, there was, one, there was a point in time when somebody's heart stopped beating. We said, oh, they're dead. Now we restart hearts. Mm -hmm. Now we're finding more and more cases where there's no electrical activity measurable at the scalp, but the person comes back and they're, they're normally consciousness doesn't. But, but they say, yeah, but I saw my, the surgeons operating on me and I saw something that was outside the window that couldn't even have been seen from the position I was in that room. So there's some kind of subtle extension yes. of the person that, that takes a different vantage point. Yes, and there's, there's, there's a number of ways that you could explain that. Uh, you don't need to resort to uh, the idea of, uh, I'll offer a few. There are quite a few cases of people who have come out of deep anesthesia who can recount the conversations. I mean, surgeons and their assistants and the nurses talk about things during the surgery. And patients, we have quite a few cases documented of people that come out and say, well, I, I heard you talking about something else, or, uh, or I heard you talking about me, or what happened during my surgery? Uh, and they say, well, actually, your heart stopped for a while and we were worried. And they, they remember hearing that. So and another explanation, okay, there's something outside the, ha happened outside the window. If our minds are really not separate, which is a thesis that, that I hold very strongly too. Uh, I'm a non-dualist. I believe that matter and mind are not separate. There's only one stuff. Yep. And, and uh, it's neither mind nor matter, but it appears as one or the other, depending on how you look at it. So therefore, from the point of view of mind, which is just a point of view of this stuff, but from the point of view of mind, we're just as connected as we are physically. All you have to have is... One of the nurses in the operating room look out the window. Ah, you're picking up on her perception. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although I've never seen an operating room with a window. But anyway, <laughs> if it had one, uh, there's no reason why that perception couldn't be picked up mind to mind, especially in an extremely altered state like, uh, like deep anesthesia. Okay, good. So I'm going to shift to some questions and get us off the topic we've been discussing. And maybe we'll be 
it'd be a little bit abrupt shifting from one question to the next, um, but it'll enable us to bring out some more facets of your teaching. And a couple of questions have come in from uh, listeners, too. Maybe I'll ask those first, but you're going to have to define some of the stages used, uh, some, some of the terms used, because people won't know what you're talking about otherwise. So okay. let me ask a couple of those first. And so this is going to be a little disjointed because we're going to jump from question to question. So this is from a fellow named Jivan in Fairfax, Virginia, who asks, how do Zagjan, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Mahamudra and Rigpa fit into your model of awakening? Are these post-stage 10 practices? And that's the question. Please, again, define terms as you answer it. Yes. Okay, so I have... I've divided the development of shamatha into 10 stages, and I, I took as my starting place uh, the nine stages of shamatha that uh, Asanga developed uh, uh, many centuries ago. Um, the tenth and final stage is where your shamatha persists for a very long time after you get up from meditation. Shamatha, as I described it earlier. So the question was, are Dzogchen and Mahamudra... Uh, how do they fit was, into your model? Dzogchen, okay. Mahamudra, and Rigpa, how do they fit in, into, the, into your model? Are these post-stage yeah. 10 things or yes. somewhere within the first and 10 stages? The answer is, is, is no. Essentially, what Dzogchen and Mahamudra are in their essence are one of the practices that I teach people to do in stage nine as a part of helping them to uh, achieve a fully developed samatha and move on to stage 10. So that's where they fit fit into it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the rigpa, that's the, that's the clear light of the mind. That's essentially what we were talking about, the field of, of consciousness that you uh, you can open yourself up to and and it's 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 very illuminating in uh, many senses of the word okay good here's another one uh, this is from Taylor in Texas um, how does insight deepen and perception change beyond fourth path again there will have to be a definition here how practical are the latter stages of awakening is it common for practitioners to achieve fourth path, for example, and find it undesirable or attempt to drop back to an earlier location? That's the kind of thing Jeffrey Martin talks about. Like yes. You can't handle the stage you're at, so you kind of you know, dumb down to a previous stage, yes. make it livable. Yes. Uh, well, um, uh, Jeffrey's locations that he's defined, and when we talk about path and fourth path, the Buddha defined four paths, four stages of awakening in terms of certain fetters that fall away. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to explain them in detail. But the fourth path is the highest one he bothered to mention, although um, I, I can tell you that that's not the highest path. That's not that's not the end of the process. It's called Arhat or Arhant, depending on the, the, the language you're using. Um, Jeffrey's locations and the Buddha's four paths have a lot of strong parallels, but they don't map perfectly onto each other. Yeah. But one thing that Jeffrey found is that people who appeared to be in his location four, which sort of but not exactly corresponds to fourth path, or Arhat, that they found that the loss of emotion that occurs as a part of that 
to be extremely disturbing and they didn't like it. They felt like they were no longer human. Mm. And so, so therefore they intentionally dropped back to a lower path. And what I'll say about that is I, it, that's too bad for them in a sense, but then again, it's quite all right as well. Uh, because to be at one of the lower paths is not a bad thing either. Um, but that is a temporary phenomenon with fourth path. That, uh, and as a matter of fact, one of the higher paths is, uh, is when you come to the place of fully embracing the world once again. In other words, re-engaging your humanity in a whole new way. So because there's a temporary period where you seem to have lost it, it's unfortunate not to move through that mm -hmm. to the to the uh, to the next side or to the to the further side of it. But the other thing too is it's not uncommon for there to be a movement between the, the these different fourth paths, uh, these different fourth paths, uh, and, and this can be. Uh, something that is not intentional or it can be something intentional in order somebody who's at a third path for example and either intentionally or unintentionally go back to a second path state where there still is desire and aversion where, where there's in this case if they're at third path it would be a reoccurrence of desire and aversion for things of the sense realm but they can do it intentionally because they want to explore something more deeply so that they can perhaps prepare themselves to move to fourth path. Or it can happen unintentionally just because the insights that they have have not completely consolidated and matured and some incident in their life causes them to move back to that state. Yeah, that actually relates to a question that my friend Ben sent in. Uh, we got some, a bunch of questions from him. He said, how does your submind theory uh, and help explain the many fallen, awakened teachers, he put awakening quotes, from the East and West. I could elaborate on the question, but I think you get it. Yes. Well, it's actually, in terms of fallen, awakened teachings, there's two answers to this. The one that relates most to, to the mind system theory and the sub-minds is that with any insight and with any path attainment, not necessarily every part of your mind achieves that insight. And of those that do, not every part of your mind achieves it to the same degree. There is a process of maturation. And as a matter of fact, you could regard the four paths themselves as describing a process of maturation. If you think of the mind as a hierarchy of sub-minds and sub-sub-minds and sub-sub-sub-minds, okay, then an insight needs to spread both horizontally and vertically. And what you're after is eventually a place where all of the sub-minds at every level have integrated the same insight. Yeah. But before that's happened, before that's happened, you could find yourself in a situation that activates part of your mind with its past conditioning that hasn't integrated those insights at all. Yeah, that's good. 
kind of relates to Ken Wilber's idea of lines of development and how you know lines don't necessarily yes. develop sequentially or in, in yes. complete correlation with one another. They can get pretty out of whack. Yes. Yeah. That's that's right. So I'm just going to ask another question here and uh, take a swing at it. Um, discuss awakening to no separate self versus the full enlightenment of the arhant. It seems that both Hindu and Buddhist scriptures describe full enlightenment as involving behavioral changes that indicate a lack of attachment, aversion, and a disposition to compassion, love. It's kind of related to what you were just saying. And let me just add, put another little spin on the question before you respond. Um, thinking of our discussion of Jeffrey Martin, I remember when I talked to him, I said something similar to what you just said, which is that there, there are stages and way stations, and some may seem rather dry, but that's not the end. So you want to move forward rather than back. And I, th- I think it kind of relates to the fact that awakening t- can take place at different levels, uh, head, mm-hmm. heart, gut, and... Uh, I mean, the whole chakra system could be brought into discussion, but there mm-hmm. there are stages of development, and and as you said, uh, you know, there's some marvelous examples of people who are by no means, uh, you know, spring, you know, beginners or intermediates who are profoundly devotional and compassionate and full of mm-hmm. heart. So so one should never mistake dryness for uh, any kind of final destination. I, I hope I didn't deviate from the original <laughs> question here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I kind of lost. Yeah, let me reread his. Let me reread his original question, and maybe we can weave both these things together. Uh, discussing awakening to no separate self, which I think can be kind of a dry state, uh, versus the full enlightenment of the arhat. It seems that both Hindu and Buddhist scriptures describe full enlightenment as involving behavioral changes, and this is an important point. I mean, is there a correlation between development of consciousness and the way you behave? Could you be an enlightened schmuck and? Uh, Correlation okay, I, with, I, with compassion and love and so on. Okay, yeah, I, 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 I've got you, and I can yeah. answer. I can answer this. Okay, except I'm losing my own train of thought here. <laughs> well, we're, I'll uh, help you for a second, but interrupt me as soon as you're ready. You, yeah. re- you ready? I'm ready. Okay, go. Uh, no, 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 I'm ready. I'm ready, ready for me to interrupt. Okay, so we're talking about correlation between awakening and oh, yes. okay. changes uh, in behavior, okay. development of the heart, yes. compassion, gonna... love. Yeah, okay, good. Go for it. Okay. All right. All right. Yes. All of the four paths are associated with distinct changes in behavior. Mm-hmm. If, And as a matter of fact, in the tradition I come from, and I think... Uh, I, I can't speak for traditions that I'm not familiar with, but certainly in the in the Theravadan tradition that I'm familiar with, if we believe that somebody has achieved a particular path, a, a particular stage of awakening, mm-hmm. you know, we'll say it seems like you have. We'll see in six months or a year or two yeah. years. Okay. And there is this thing that they say in some schools that only an awakened person can tell whether somebody else is awakened, and I say that's BS. <laughs> Because their behavior will reveal. Now, the difference, the, the thing about no separate self, there's really the self manifests in us in two different ways. One is conceptual. I call it the ego self. It's the idea of who we are. 
If I asked you to describe who you were or write it down, if I asked you to spend the next week every day, sit down for half an hour and, and write a description, what you would get is a conceptual description of who you are, what you like, what you don't like, your personality characteristics, ah, blah, blah, blah. And that's a good description of who you are. That's that's one kind of, that's the ego self. That's yeah, a, who my relative self is. Yeah, right. right. That's what goes away with first, first path, with stream entry. What remains is the inherent sense, this feeling, a feeling that I'm a separate self, even though I know I'm not. From, from stream entry on, I'll know I'm not a separate self. I've seen through that, but I still feel like it. What goes away with the arhat is the feeling, the inherent sense of being separate. That's, that's completely dissolved. Now, the other part of this that you mentioned was compassion. Okay, very interesting work done by another friend of mine, Dick Boyle, Richard Boyle, uh, and he he didn't interview nearly as people as many people before he wrote his book as Jeffrey did. What is the name of Richard Boyle's book? I, 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 what is it? <laughs> anyway, anyway, I, Richard deserves that. I uh, say. Anyway, he. What he recognized as a result of his interviews, and which I totally agree with in my experience, is that when somebody achieves the first level of awakening, there's a certain kind of compassion that is born, that's inevitable. Because they've had a realization that they're not a separate self. So their mind will never quite lose the compassion that's born of that realization but it may go no further than that. And so you can, a person can become an arhat and still only have that primitive level of compassion. Compassion and wisdom have to be developed separately. Uh, or no, I should say they have to be developed. Concurrently. Concurrently. Yeah. Concurrent. Right. Concurrent. Here it is, realizing awakened consciousness. So so let me- Richard Boyle. Richard's, Richard's book here. Okay. Yeah. And but, is there a correlation between them? Like, it's, is it like a stretchy rubber band where if you pull it, the other end's going to come along? Or are they totally dis yes. disconnected? They're not totally disconnected, but they're also, there's a stretchiness. So Good. that yeah. somebody can go an awful long ways in the wisdom direction and still have pretty primitive compassion. But the further they go, it's, you know, there's going to be this tension pulling them in the direction of compassion. And I think that's what accounts for a lot of our fallen spiritual masters, mm. you know, uh, that you asked yourself, how could that person have done that to his students and his sangha and things like that? Well, he may baked. have had a lot of wisdom, but he was missing on that other component. And the other side of it is you can have people that lack the wisdom, but they've developed an enormous amount of compassion. Mm -hmm. So I guess what you're saying is that it's not like a table where if you pull one leg, all the other legs are going to come along. You can't just um, sit in samadhi on a regular basis and expect to become a compassionate, you know, person necessarily. That that you might need to work on several levels. You know, fine, fine, have your samadhi experience, but also go out and do some selfless service or do something to develop the heart and the behavioral, you know, that kind of thing. 
Yes, you do have to. And that's one of the things that I think the Tibetan tradition does a better job than, than most do, is they have a lot of practices designed to develop compassion. And uh, there's a loving kindness meditation in the Theravadan tradition that tries to do to do the same thing. But there's, there's even a downfall in this. You can do all of these compassion practices and they'll develop the part of your brain that is associated with compassion and that also produces a state of happiness. And this is one of the interesting things they found is that you take somebody who does compassion meditation, stick them in an fMRI machine and the part of their prefrontal lobes associated with happiness light up. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you can do all these practices sitting in your monk cell or in your meditation hall or in your cave and you can really develop the compassion part of your brain and you can enjoy a lot of personal happiness as a result of that and never do a single thing for anybody else's benefit. Now it'd be interesting to see if such a person, you know, went to New York City and you know started walking down the street and encounter and encountering the stresses and challenges and triumph and tragedies of life in the outer world, the real world, the real world. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whether it would hold up or whether it was just easy to maintain when you're sitting in your cave, but it kind of falls flat when you get out there. Well, what happens? What happens is. This happened to me. I didn't develop the compassion part to the degree that I should have. And then there came a part in my own spirit, a point in my own spiritual development where fate, whatever, I was brought in contact with people in an enormous amount of suffering. And it's like that part of me just, it, it blossomed. It, yeah, it blossomed. It was there, it was primed, I developed it. Um, from a neurological point of view, the, the, the synapses have been formed in that part of my brain. It's just I hadn't experientially had anything to trigger it. Mm. And once it did, then, you know, my heart opened and, and I started becoming a much more compassionate person as a result of it. And I'm still in the process of developing that. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's like you said, to, the analogy that comes to mind, let's say you're you're practicing martial arts and you're just practicing and practicing and practicing, but you've never actually entered a tournament or anything. But when you finally do enter one, you do pretty well because of all that practice as, compo as compared to somebody like me who entered such a, who, if I were to enter such a tournament, would get, <laughs> you know, so, so finally you had a chance to apply it and, uh, the, and it mm -hmm. showed that you had actually developed something when you did. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so a really important part of the spiritual path is to get out of your cave and get out in the world. Yeah. And, and get, that, get that triggered. And I think this is what happens with some of our fallen masters. They become too secluded. Mm. They sit there on their mountaintop and they may be surrounded by a thousand adoring students. Right. But um, it's not triggering what needs to be triggered. Another syndrome is they, they were raised in an ashram in India or someplace like that and yes. uh, never confronted with the sorts of things that they encountered when they came to the West and had no idea that they would react as they did once confronted by those things. That's exactly right, yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. And it can become quite, over. it was very overwhelming for me when I first experienced it. It was like, oh yeah. my God. <laughs> and I try to take the attitude of, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, you know, judge not lest you be judged. Um, if I were in their shoes, same thing might have happened to me. <clears throat> so it's good to be compassionate and appreciative of the benefit that they do.
do bring to the world or have brought to the world. And, you know, like you, you take what you need and you leave the rest. Yeah. Um, you write that the purification of the senses results in subtle perception. At least that's what my friend Ben said that you wrote. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, that these experiences of light, joy, silence, etc., sound like aspects of the personal God realization experience that is discussed in some other traditions. Um, do you think there's some kind of experiential overlap there? Yes, yeah, I do. I, I, I personally, I think all legitimate, valid spiritual traditions are there's a commonality there, and we use different language and different. We apply different conceptual interpretations and models to to it. But it, mm -hmm. but yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. Well, actually, on that point, I, I've often wondered why, at least I've always heard, that Buddhism doesn't really talk about God very much. It's, I mean, guys like, uh, what was his, what's his name, who wrote uh, Waking Up, Sam Harris, you know, managed to be yeah. dedicated Buddhists and yet atheists. Um, totally atheists. Pardon? Yes, totally atheists. Right? Yeah, and so I kind of wonder about that, because I, I, my sense of things is that full realization would open one up to something that, you know, I mean, the word God is very much misunderstood and misused in many quarters, but some sort of divine intelligence that um, is far from being random or capricious or anything else, that the universe is, is infused with, permeated by, orchestrated by vast intelligence, which we might call God. Does Buddhism see it that way, or, or what? Why does Buddhism have this reputation for being atheistic? Yeah. Well, you speak of Buddhism as though it were one thing. Ah, you're and, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's so many different kinds of Buddhism and flavors and tastes and everything like that. But um, I, the, what I think is pretty much universally... Uh, not seen in, in Buddhism is the kind of personal God, God as a person, mm -hmm. God as a being. And this, this without going into detail, um, such a notion is in conflict with almost every core doctrine of Buddhism. On the other hand, if you go to the very progressive Christian thinkers, uh, Catholic and otherwise, you will find that they have descriptions and, and notions of God uh, that are a sort that I think many Buddhists would be very comfortable with. Mm -hmm. I say many, but not necessarily all or even most. Um, but I, I think it would be Hor uh, it would be horribly naive of us to think that we represent a level of mental and spiritual development that uh, could can perceive the limits of the underlying intelligence and beauty, magnificence, and even a sort of teleology in the universe. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I look at the, I, I, I study physics and things like this as part of my process. And when I look at the history of the universe, I see it 
as a very progressive evolutionary process. Mm. When I look mm. at human history, I see the same thing. I see it in animal evolution, I see it in human history. I lived through the revolutionary times in the 60s when uh, race relationships in this country underwent dramatic changes. Um, there is something, you know, uh, you, you want to take the the, the entropy as, uh, you know, a physicist will say second law of thermodynamics, you can tell what's future, which event is future and which is event is past by the uh, degree of entropy. And I could say you can take two events and you can tell say which was in the past and which, which was uh, came later by the degree to which the universe has expressed this kind of evolution towards a higher state. I don't begin to pretend to uh, understand what that is. I just recognize that it's there. And I know that that there's people who would jump all over that me for saying that. <laughs> and, 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 and I don't mind. I see it. To me, it's as clear as can be. And, and I'm quite happy in my ignorance of how it works. It doesn't sound too ignorant to me. That was a great answer. <laughs> um, and, you know, for, interesting you should mention entropy because obviously if entropy were the only law, <clears throat> the universe would just sort of disintegrate. Mm -hmm. But obviously there's something which is, you know, which creates order and, and complexity and, you know, um, specificity and so on that is quite the opposite of entropy. Um, yes. Even though maybe entropy is tugging at its heels all the time, but there's always this, you know, increasing sophistication, um, which to me um, very much speaks of some divine intelligence that that has a some kind of what's that term? Evolutionary panentheism. I, I've discovered yes. that that's what I am. <laughs> if I had to de define my yeah. philosophy, uh, that yeah. there's this sort of evolutionary imperative or force in the universe that just uh -huh. keeps evolving greater, uh, more and more sophisticated vehicles through which the yes. divine can be a living reality. Yes. Yeah. I, I would go along with that, and I always try to stop short of putting labels on it, because as soon as you put words to it, uh, somebody can, it can, can tear it apart. You know, yeah, so well, yeah. Like if you use the word God, some might, somebody might sort of use the straw man argument that you're referring to some bearded guy in the sky or something. But right. you know, we throw these words. We have to. We can agree upon our terms. But I think you and I are talking about the same thing. Just mm -hmm. some vast, unfathomable intelligence <clears throat> or something. <laughs> That's and, and I would say that that is that is a that that realization itself is one of the greatest gifts of pursuing the spiritual path that you you discover it, it's a mystery that you know you will never even begin to plumb but to to exist in the midst of that great incredible wondrous mystery is itself so awe-inspiring that uh, to live there for a moment makes it all worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, I think this relates back to what we were saying earlier about devotion and compassion and stuff. Because when you really start to tune into that that we that we're just discussing, uh, it just thrills the heart and gives you this sense of awe and reverence, and you know it really yes. wakes that quality up in you. Yeah. It really does. Here's maybe a final question. We'll see if anything else comes up uh, from. 
me or you or listeners, but this is from, oh, here, another one just came in. But this one, well, let me see what the other one is first, because this other question is kind of final. Okay, this is a good one to ask. Are you doing okay, time-wise? I'm doing fine. Yes. Okay, great. This is from someone named Don in Louisiana, who asks, what is your view of the Siddhis, the so-called psychic powers? Well, I think, I think some of the Siddhis um, Buddha was said to have some, right? Yes. Uh, well, a, a lot of things that are said about the Buddha are quite questionable. Yeah, a little bit. Okay, so it depends on which cities you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But the fact, you know, that uh, I've already stated that I'm, I'm a total non-dualist and I believe that, that our minds are, are interconnected. So there are some cities which are quite... To me, they're quite understandable. Uh, they, the uh, like being able knowing... to see something at a distance or know something at a distance. Sure. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, somebody's you know, going to phone you, and all of a sudden it rings and that kind of. Yeah. Thing. Well, yeah. Those kinds of things, no, no problem at all. Mm -hmm. Now you get into walking on water and walking through walls, and um, we need proof. I, I'll have to see it. Yeah, I think that's a healthy <laughs> attitude. Yeah, you know, here here in Fairfield, Iowa, there have been people practicing a city program for decades, and uh, you know, there's this lady I was talking to her at a garden party, and and she was saying, well, you know, I've gotten to the point where I wake up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom, and I I can barely walk because I'm floating, and I'm just on my tiptoes. And I said, great. I said, do you own, do you own a bathroom scale? And she said, no. So we'll go get one, and then <laughs> and then next time this happens, just step on it and see what your weight is, and let me know. <laughs> Fabulous answer. I, that's, that's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, somewhat related to this, but a little bit different, is. Um, hang on a second. Um, actually, we are. We kind of touched on this. Did I already ask you this about? I, I, I did a little bit about subtle perception, and then we got into talking about uh, uh, you know love and devotion and, and things like that. But I know that in Buddhist. Um, iconography and so on there are all sorts of beings floating around you know see these these rugs and, and whatnot where there's all these characters on, on different levels of creation and so on um, in your view is there a sort of a, a, a kind of a vertical dimensionality to creation with subtle realms in which uh, beings reside that we might not be able to perceive with our ordinary earthly senses uh, a simple answer, yes. Okay. Uh, more complex answer is what we can perceive and how we perceive it is limited by both our sense organs and the neural tissue we have to process the input of those sense organs. Right. And we could look at many other living organisms on this planet and we can know that there's lots of things that we perceive that they don't. We could look at other organisms and say lots of things they can perceive that we can't. And so to posit that there are actually beings of a sort and realms of a sort that are energetically uh, indetectable by us. Well, in physics, we have dark matter and dark energy. So that by itself says, yes, this is possible. Yeah. Some people posit that birds can actually see magnetic lines and that they navigate that way you know, when, they're, yeah. when they migrate. So, I mean, and we know about bats and whales and all kinds of things that can hear things and see things that we can't. So, 
That's not surprising. It's just a, it's somewhat analogous, but not mm-hmm. entirely, because what we're talking about here is subtler realms that, uh, and many people do develop the capacity to experience mm-hmm. them. You know, their sensual, their sensory yes. capacities evolve, and they can see angels or whatever these beings are. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and I, I I agree with that. I know people like that, and I'm impressed by their abilities Mm -hmm. and I don't find it as a surprise because if there were beings of a sort that our 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 senses can't detect but they had minds that that mind would be part of the same minefield that we're a part of so even though we couldn't uh, from the material perspective uh, see them or uh, from from the mental perspective if we're part of the same um, minefield then why could we not uh, have uh, sense them and have contact with them? Yeah. So it's completely plausible to me. Okay. I haven't personally, well, have I had, I've, I've practiced uh, shamanism for a while. Mm-hmm. And while I was doing that, I definitely felt like I was in touch with spirit beings of a different realm that could not be seen, felt, touched, or yeah. anything else. So, so I won't say that I haven't experienced that. I, I mean, I could also look at that and say, okay, I was very much primed by the whole training that I did and the, and the things that we do as a part of shamanic processes and the drumming and things like that, that those could have been projections of my own mind. I can't deny that that's a possibility. But nevertheless, I had those experiences and uh, they could as easily represent having actually had contact with beings in a different realm as they could be a projection in my mind. Yeah, okay, good. Here's a question that came in from my friend Ben, just came in, the other ones he had sent me previously. This, he's down in Austin. Um, he said, the so-called, and this will take a little bit of explanation because this is a little bit of an in-group question, but the so-called pragmatic Dharma movement pioneered by Bill Hamilton, Daniel Ingram, Kenneth Folk, and others takes a full disclosure attitude toward attainments. Do you agree with this stance? And I think what he means by that, I remember when, when I interviewed Daniel Ingram, he said he was quite upfront about the attainments he felt mm-hmm. he had achieved, and he felt like you shouldn't hide your light under a bushel, and if people are going to practice for decades to attain something, then when somebody finally does, they should say so, you know? <laughs> Otherwise, what hope is there for people starting out? Uh, so do you agree with that? I certainly do agree with that, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's opposite, that one, one should, uh, here, here's an opinion that I want to throw in, I'm glad I have the opportunity. Mm-hmm. In, in the Lanaya, uh, the what? There, the, the book of, Dis, uh, the part of the Buddhist uh, uh, Tipitaka, the, the stories of the Buddha. Okay. Uh, the, and this is the, this is the book of discipline, this is the, where each of the rules he made for the monks has a story behind it. Okay, and so within there, he gives the instruction to his monks not to make claims about their meditation and spiritual attainments for sake of personal benefits. Right. He doesn't say, don't ever mention it. Right. But how that has subsequently been interpreted is that you don't ever mention this to anybody except maybe your teacher or maybe somebody else who's at the same level of attainment that you are. And the effect of that 
is just the opposite of what you might think its intention was. It allows somebody to pass themselves off as having attainments that they don't because the uh, they act as though they do and then somebody comes and says well you are are you enlightened and uh, the person says sorry can't tell you that <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know and and it has it allows people including, uh, you know, you mentioned Bill Hamilton. Uh, he wrote a great book called Saints and Psychopaths. And um, there's a lot of psychopaths amongst our saints. And it's exactly this kind of thing that allows psychopaths to play these kinds of games. Yeah, I feel very strongly, and I've given talks on this and stuff, that if we had a clearer understanding of what enlightenment actually is, then it would be a lot harder for psychopaths to pose as saints or for, you know, sort of, you know, and, and all, all, the, all the abusive cults and strange things that have come along would have, would have had a really hard time getting off the ground. You know, people wouldn't have been so easily misled. So I think That's it's, right. a, it's part, important for us as a culture to evolve in the direction of a, a much clearer, more precise, more detailed, common understanding of this, the whole spiritual realm. I agree with that totally. Yeah. With, with the caveat that what we're talking about are things that are the can that are subject to being misunderstood, mm -hmm. and we have to be careful how we talk about these things for yeah. that reason. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about them. We should. It's right. important that we do, and it's important that Jeffrey Martin and and Richard Boyle and people like that do the work. Um, I've got a couple of there's a fellow named Costines who did a PhD thesis. Uh, I mean, it's good. We're doing research on awakened people. So that, so we're going to develop a body of knowledge about what awakening really is. Yeah. And there are a lot of people working on this sort of thing independently, and I hope that more and more they collaborate with one another. Um, you know, I mean, the Science and Non-Duality Conference in California and that, that consciousness conference they have down in Tucson, and there are attempts to do this, but I think much more could be done. Um, and I think one of the things that could be done is some kind of n neurophysiological parameters, you know, that would be measurable and that would be found through enough research to correlate with various states of consciousness that, you, you, I mm -hmm. mean, you could actually take a, an, some kind of EEG test to determine, you know, what, <laughs> what stage you were at if it were all properly, you know, developed. I think we're a long, long way from that. But is it theoretically possible? Yes. Yeah, it's an interesting goal, perhaps. <clears throat> yes. Um, okay, so unless a final question comes in, this would be a good wrap-up question. Um, what are you working on in your own personal practice? This is from Ignacio Martinez in Buenos Aires. What are you working on in your own personal practice? Um... Two things, I guess. Uh, one is, as I mentioned before, compassion, mm -hmm. developing my own compassion and a total re-embracing of my own humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, I would consider that as, as, as being a path level that's not traditionally described that I'm working on. And the other thing that I'm working on is... Uh, uh, the implications of my own death. Mm -hmm. And in, in that regard, and, and 
you know, apropos of what we were discussing earlier, what do you make of the whole bodhisattva vow, you know, that, well, I'm not going to check out of here ultimately until all beings are, are awakened. I'll be happy to come back again and again. It sounds like you wouldn't buy into that notion because you don't believe in any one entity coming back again and again. Well, I actually... Yeah, I don't believe in, in in any kind of self or soul or entity that's going to going to come back again mm-hmm. as, as it is. On the other hand, uh, attitudinally, it's right on. It's perfect. Uh, never with I, that's what I'm saying. Reengaging with the world. Never withdraw the withdraw from the world because you feel like you've made it. I mean, this is this is kind of the Mahayana criticism of the Theravadan Arahat that that okay. That's fine. You're enlightened, so now you don't, you know, you don't worry about the rest of the yeah. world. Let's see. Yeah. I'm out of here. <laughs> and and uh, I, I don't buy that at all. I mean, you uh, you do absolutely everything you can to bring absolutely everyone else along with you, uh, and um, you, you don't have to. You, you do it now. Um, it, 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 it doesn't matter if I'm wrong and I come back again in another lifetime. That's not my concern. My concern is what I do now. Yeah, that's good. And I mean, it's a little bit of a angels on the head of a pin argument, whether you yeah. know we come back or this or that happens. I mean, who knows? Uh, I once heard a, uh, an interview with some yogi who spoke good English, and uh, he, he was asked about this whole coming back thing. And he said, I don't really care. He said, whatever God wills, I just want to be of service. If I come back, if I don't come back, it's, it's in God's hands, and I'm surrendered to that. You know, and that's exactly what the Buddha said when he was asked about these things. Although all these Buddhists forget it, he said, "Doesn't matter." He said, "Reincarnation, you know, whether what happens after you die, it's irrelevant. Forget about it. Yeah, doesn't matter." Huh. Good. Well, uh, I didn't have your physical book, but I think people can see this is your the mind, uh, yes. the mind illuminated, a complete meditation guide. I've been reading it on my iPad, and uh, it's a great book. Very thorough, a um, little bit heady in places. I mean, a little bit, you have to really focus to understand what you're saying, but it's a good exercise in and of itself. And it's, it's like a, a marvelous um, analysis. It's, it's, the, the feeling I got as I was reading it was like, wow, this is someone who has really been studying the mind for a long time, you know, in, in terms of his own subjective practice and experience and has has elaborated, has fleshed out great, great detail as to, uh, a detailed theory at least, as to how the mind functions. So it's interesting. Very good book. Well, thank you. Thank you, Rick. So um, people want to get involved with what you're offering or whatnot. What, what, what do you have to offer? I mean, you have a, a a facility down there near Tucson, right? People can go there. Are there also online courses? Do you travel around and teach them? You know, what what can people do to get in touch with you or connect with you? Well, right now I'm putting most of my effort into training people to teach what I teach, mm-hmm. and I have a lot of students who are who who have a high level of spiritual attainment themselves. Yeah, you know, um, I just sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to say I've I've heard it said that you can tell the quality of a teacher by the quality of his students, and I've been listening to a lot of recordings of yours, and I was very impressed with a lot of the questions that your students were asking and things they were saying. I thought, wow, this is really a kind of a mature group. 
Well, the, and and the the creme de la creme are the ones every Saturday morning and every Sunday morning. I do a, a two-hour online class with uh, a different group of people. I have four groups going right now, and um, that's where most of my energy is going into. I've, I've been dealing with uh, a lot of health issues and cancer, and so I am doing. Uh, I'm, I'm doing a uh, retreat this summer, leading a retreat this summer at Shambhala Mountain Center, and I believe the space in that. I'm doing a retreat in September at uh, Berry Center, and it is full, but there's a waiting list. And at the moment, I'm holding off on scheduling other retreats to see where my health goes. Mm -hmm. I also have another book that I'm working on and I want to have time for. What we do have is uh, people coming here and doing solo retreats and occasionally I do retreats here where we live for the health reasons and because of the other book I'm write, writing. We're kind of backing off a little bit on the number of people come here do solo retreats with me, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm hoping that we will be able to do more of that. And I'm hoping that more of my students will be able to assist me with that. So the best thing that I can say is to uh, monitor what's going on at the dharmatreasure.org website. And people can contact us directly for more specific information at upasaka.chuladasa at gmail.com. Okay. And, um if you, hmm, I think I have your address, the, and I'll listen to this and make sure I've got that right, and I'll put it on your page on batgap.com so people can just click on it and go, because it might be people, we won't bother trying to spell it right now or anything. Great. So um, I really appreciate the time you spent. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I realize that there's a lot of things we could have discussed that we didn't get to. We just sort of went down this avenue and that avenue, and um, if people are intrigued by what they've heard, there's a lot more to to learn and read about if they want to read your book and delve into what your teachings. So, yes. Yeah. So thanks. So thank you very much. It's oh. my pleasure to do this. Thanks for listening or watching, everybody. Um, this is an ongoing series, as you know. Go to batgap.com to you know get notified by email of future interviews to check out past ones uh, to um, you know explore there's a there's a menu said that's called at a glance go to that and it'll summarize everything we have to offer on the site and uh, of course there'll be a page for chuladasa and for this interview and with links to his website and his email and, and his book and and so on Next week, I believe I am interviewing Pamela Wilson again. I've interviewed her about five or six years ago, so it'll be a little catch-up with Pamela. So thanks, Chuladasa. It's been, it's been a joy. Thank you. Yeah, and, It has been a joy. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And thanks to, to everyone listening or watching. We'll see you next week. <laughs>